Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Wonderful and powerful singing in worship. Great to hear the guitars, the drums, the uh, keyboards, but best of all, to hear your voices, to worship God in the splendor and the beauty of his holiness. What we just did was worship in song and Maybe you've heard me say this before. What we're doing right now is worship in preaching. We didn't stop worshiping. Teaching maybe is worshipful, maybe it isn't, depending. But this is not merely teaching. Preaching is a a God-ordained means of grace in the church where one spirit-anointed minister in the presence of many spirit-filled people, worships God by going through his revelation and by being transformed by his revelation. And that's what this portion of our worship service is, is pure and true worship. So as we open up God's word to the book of Isaiah, talk about God's holiness, let's pray. God eternal, Show us now in this brief moment of preaching that all things are shadows, but you alone are substance. Assure us now as we open your word that though all things are shifting, you alone are the anchor that holds. Teach us now that though all things be ignorance and folly, you alone are wisdom. Convict us now by the omnipotent power of your Holy Spirit, convict us now, not so much about the circumstances around us, but about the character of Christ to be formed in us. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The sermon this morning is all about one of those church words that, well, everybody here just sang it. We've all probably said it. We've all heard it, but I wonder if we think we know what it means, but we don't really know what it means, which is the case with a lot of church words. The word is holy or holiness. And so to approach this, why don't we back up and just ask the question, how do we even know what a church word means? How do we even know what a Bible or a doctrine word means? We've all, we have all had this experience. We're with a group of Christians uh, in our ABF or in a small group or talking around the, uh, some coffee and some Kringle and we're talking about a Bible word like holy or a church word like holy. And somebody in the group says, well, when I think of holiness, I like to think of it this way. Uh, maybe good, maybe not so good. Because the way you like to think of something is only indicative of the way you like to think. And the way you like to think is as bent as you are. The way I like to think of something is as bent as I am. So I ask you the question again, how do we know what a word like holy really means? We can find a good Bible teacher, R.C. Sproul or somebody and, and study it. 
but what if what they teach us is only what they like to think? How do we know? The only way to know is to hear, to hear the Holy Spirit of God say, when I think of holiness, I like to think of it this way. And the Spirit of God speaks this way in the opening and the exposition and the unfolding of his word, of his word. And so when we come to the word holy, when we hear the Holy Spirit speak in Isaiah, it's the perfect place, it's the perfect place to answer this question because we have this phrase, the holiness of God. We sing only a holy God. Here's something I found out. Uh, take out the book of Isaiah, the entire Old Testament minus Isaiah, it speaks of the holiness of God that is holy attributed to God with a genitive uh, or a possessive 26 times. The book of Isaiah itself attributes holiness to God 36 times, more than the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament. Isaiah is obsessed with putting holy and God together so that the only definition of holy has to do with the character and reality of God. And our only understanding of God is that he is ineffably, incomprehensibly holy, whatever that word holy means. So I want to look together at the holiness of God in the book of Isaiah. First place to go is Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Look at Isaiah 40 and verse 25. This is, of all the many names of God, this is Isaiah's favorite name for God. Isaiah 40, verse 25, the Holy One, it says at the end of the verse, or the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah's characteristic name for God. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So here, holy, if we look at that verse, it has to do with comparison. And we could say that if something is holy, that thing is incomparable. That's, it's, it's separated from and not able to be compared with anything else. It's incomparable. God himself is the one and only. Now, throughout Isaiah 40, this concept of holiness has to do with largeness, breadth, depth, bigness, grandness, and greatness. Look at uh, Isaiah 40. Pick it up in verse 12. Isaiah, as a poet, pictures the bigness of God in this way, cupping his hands. He says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult when he made, or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice or taught him knowledge or showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon wouldn't suffice for fuel, nor are all of its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing 
and emptiness. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And here's more poetic imagery. All the people of the earth are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah says that the entire cosmos is like a tent. I'm no expert at camping. I've done it a couple times. And when I did, I carried the tent. I carried it by myself to the campsite, popped it up. Isaiah says that's the universe to God. Isaiah defines God's holiness with these images in Isaiah 40. Look ahead a little bit to Isaiah 46. Look at what he says about God's holiness in verse 5. 46 verse 5. Holiness has something to do with incomparability the one and only, the distinct one. Uh, God is holy, meaning he is incomparable to anyone else. And we see this in Isaiah 46, verse five. See the question God asks, to whom will you liken me? Holiness has to do with God not being likened to anything. To whom then will you liken me? To whom will you compare me that we may be alike? Lavish gold from the purse, weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and make it into a God and fall down and worship it. Lift up your God on your shoulders and carry it. Set it in place and it stands there. It can't move if somebody cries out to it. It's not going to answer him or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. You see the middle of verse 9? For I am God and there is no other. Holiness must have to do with singularity. I am God, and there is no other. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. Holiness must have to do, verse 9, with singularity. Holiness must have to do, verse 10, with a knowledge of all things, past, present, and future, a knowledge of all possibilities, a knowledge of all hypothetical situations. And it must have to do, the end of verse 10, with a sovereignty which accomplishes all of his purposes. I suppose if we had to sum it down into one verse, uh, what are you in Isaiah 46? Go to Isaiah 45, verse 22. I think Isaiah 45 verse 22, at least to me, is one of the central verses in all of the Hebrew scripture. Because we love to ask why questions. And better than anything else, I think Isaiah 45 22 answers our why questions in a a somewhat inexplicable way that doesn't give us warm, fuzzy feelings that all of our whys are kind of stitched up in, in 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 a nice quilt. But it does tell us why. 
Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Here's why. For I am God and there is no other. Why does God save sinners? Because he is God alone and there is no other because of his holiness, his incomparability. Why does God condemn sinners to hell? Because he is God and there is no other. God does what he does for the sake of his own name, for he alone is holy. And so looking a little bit at just a few of the things Isaiah says about holiness, we can say, even based on Isaiah 6, where holy is the only thing triplicated, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We can say that holiness must, in some sense, function as an attribute which summarizes and crowns all the other attributes. Because God's holiness is, in some sense, his perfection. And all of his attributes together showcase his perfection. Holiness emphasizes God's perfection. But we have to, we have to back that up a little bit too. Because how do we know if something's perfect? Well, we compare it to the standard of perfection. So here we go. To what standard do we compare God? Everything we read from Isaiah 40, 45, 46 says there is no standard to which you can compare God. That's what it means that he's holy. It means his utter perfection in the sense that he, that he is the standard of all standards. He is the measure of all measures. In the utter uniqueness of his perfection, the utter uniqueness of his separateness and transcendence, there is no way to compare him to anything. This is why we worship him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. I think the old King James Version simply translated that beauty. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Fear him, all the earth. Is it a beauty? Oh, it's beauty beyond all compare. But is it fearful? You better believe it. How could something be beautiful and fearful? Well, how could anything sum up the, the beauty of our God? Stephen Charnock, who wrote a, like, probably the best book ever written about the attributes of God, like in the 1600s. I mean, uh, he, he, uh, he compares God's features, so to speak, to human features, which is something that the, that the Bible does. And this is what Charnock says. Power is God's arm. Omniscience is God's eye. Mercy, and here he's going to use a Puritan term, mercy is God's bowels by which he means his guts, his heart. Power is God's arm, omniscience his eye, mercy his bowels, eternity his duration. Oh, but holiness is his beauty. Holiness is his beauty. Holiness is the entirety of God's divine perfections which separate him from all of creation. God is the creator who exists alone and independent of all creation. There is, cre- there is creation, and then there's the creator. 
And all of creation depends upon the creator. And all of creation should, in some sense, compare itself to the creator because he's the standard of all standards. He's the norm of all norms. So all creation depends on the creator and all creation compares itself to the creator. But the creator alone is entirely independent of creation and in no way compares himself to creation. So we look together at God's holiness and we are wanting to be careful to define it, not by how we like to think about it, but by how the Holy Spirit thinks about it in the Word. And so I would invite you back again to Isaiah 6, where in verse 3 we have, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we see this holiness of the Lord, which is triplicated and repeated three times. We actually see the holiness of God demonstrated in three directions in Isaiah 6. First, the holiness of God in himself. That is his character, his impenetrable essence, his transcendence. The cherubim cover their eyes because God's holy character. And second, we see God's holiness demonstrated in salvation, in sin and salvation. Because as, as everything is shaking, verse 4, and as there's smoke everywhere, verse 4, Isaiah confesses his sin in verse 5. And he says, I'm unclean, woe is me. But then in God's holiness, verses 6 and 7, God gets the burning coal to forgive his sin. So first, holiness and God himself. Second, holiness and our salvation and judgment. And then third, the rather strange portion of Isaiah 6, which is his call to ministry, verses 9 to 13, where God says, you're going to do what I'm going to ask you to do and you're not going to see the results that you think you're going to see. So holiness and the strange calling of our life and ministry. First, holiness and God himself. How do we think of God? God is not the highest in an ascending order of beings. We, hopefully we saw that in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 46. We don't start with an amoeba and a snail and a bird and an ape and a man and an angel and then God. God's not the highest in some explicably ascending order of beings because the gap between a created angel and a created snail is finite and explicable. But the gap between God and the holiest angel is infinite and inexplicable. He's utterly other. One of the very best books of theology I have is by a Dutch theologian named uh, Herman Bavink. And he was Dutch, so I like to picture him eating those nasty, salted black licorices that Dutch people love while he wrote his book. And uh, this is actually on the first page of his book about the doctrine of God, is this. This is what Bavink says. Theology does not deal with finite creatures, but from beginning to end raises itself above every creature to the eternal and endless and incomprehensible God. Therefore, mystery is a vital portion of theology. For when we speak of God, we speak of the ineffable. And here's what he says. 
it is much easier to say what God is not than to say what he is. I think that's true. Because God is so other and so ineffable. It is much easier to say what God is not than what he is. Scripture gives us a true and reliable knowledge of God, but a complete revelation of God in his being we will never get, for he is incomprehensible. The finite can never grasp the infinite. That's in the first couple paragraphs of his book on the doctrine of God. If I'd ask you to turn one more place from Isaiah 6, would you turn back to Exodus 3? Why not go to the, the sort of paradigm setting portion of scripture where God names himself and see if we can figure out something of his character and his essence here in Exodus chapter 3 where we find the name Yahweh. Instead of thinking our own thoughts, let our thoughts follow the revelation of the Holy Spirit of God in Scripture. So in Exodus, we have Moses about to meet God. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Here where we're going to find the name of God, Oh, like a, oh, like a, like a grandpa stooping down to hold his precious kids. God gives Moses a picture of a bush because he knows how far this gap is and he knows there's just, there's just no way Moses is going to understand this theoretically or didactically. He's got to understand it tactilely with something he can see and like a heat he can feel. So God gives him this picture. How like Jesus, who always, always spoke in pictures. So God gives Moses this picture of the bush that burns and is not consumed. We'll get to what that means maybe in a moment. Moses says in verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why this bush is burning but is not consumed. And he takes off his feet and he knows it's holy ground and God reminds him that he's the God of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and his promise to take them out of Egypt. I'll pick it up in Exodus 3 verse 13. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? How, what a, how like a meek leader Moses doesn't just be like, hey, tell me who you are. Moses is like, if I want to help these people and they ask me who you are, what can I tell them? God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. Yod, hey, wow, hey, Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am, or just I am. The Hebrew uh, can be present tense, I am who I am. The Hebrew can just as likely be future tense, in which case we would translate it as God saying, I will be who I will be. A reason to tilt it toward future is because in this immediate context, God is promising what he will do for Israel in the near future. So is it present or future? Well, once again, we're bumped up against the cre creature-creator distinction. 
Because to us, everything is either past or present or future. But God is what? I am. His essence is outside of time, for time is one of his created things. Time is his toy that he does with what he will. So in the essence of his character is eternal and timeless. Yet he chooses to reveal his works to us in time. So we wonder, is he talking about the future? Is he talking about the past? Well, from our perspective, I guess we have to figure that out. But so to speak, from God's perspective, which transcends our categories, there is no past, present, future. He is the I am. What does it mean? I am. The Hebrew may mean uh, I am. Uh, it, the emphasis may be this. God is saying, I am who I define myself to be. And no one else defines me. Remember the beginning of the Bible? When the giraffes and the gorillas and the peacocks all walked in front of Adam. And remember what it says? Adam named the animals. When Moses asks God his name, God's answer, if you interpret I am this way, which I think is a legitimate interpretation, is I name myself for no one can ever successfully name me. It's a statement that he and he alone determines who he is. It's a statement of self-sufficiency and self-determination. And self-sufficiency and self-determination is one of the ultimate differences between creation and creator. For nothing in creation is self-defined or self-sufficient or self-determined. Only the creator can be attributed as such. So perhaps I am is a statement of self-sufficiency and self-determination. My name is what I say it is because there's no other who can define or limit or understand me. This is perhaps what Bavink meant when he said God is ineffable. It's easier to say what he's not than what he is. And Isaiah, we read them. In, Isaiah is a profound poet. He would, have been a, he would have been a great songwriter because you look at all the colorful images that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 40, but none of those images can really define who God is because only God can define who God is. And God, God's self-revelation... Though we, can comp though we can apprehend it as trustworthy, we can never comprehend it. Only God can comprehend God. God can reveal himself accurately to us, but we're only ever seeing the edges, the, the little tassels on the backside of the bottom of his robe. So what does it mean that the bush burned but wasn't consumed? Creation creator, self-sustaining, self-determining I am. Creation is never self-sustaining and never self-determining. So what do we know about fire? Fire burns as long as there is fuel. The fire's going out and you, because you're lazy, say to your wife, put another log on the fire. And maybe she does or maybe she clonks you with it, whatever, but somehow we got to keep feeding the fire. You turn on your grill, everyone's so hungry for brats and burgers, and the thing lights, and then it turns off in one minute. The brats are still cold because 
It's out of gas. It's out of fuel. What is the meaning behind the bush that burns and is not consumed? Well, God is the fire that needs no fuel. The fire in the bush is self-sustaining and self-determining and self-subsistent, which is a hint of what God means when he says he is the I am. Great old Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, in his uh, sermon on Exodus 3, he says, Yahweh God is the flame that does not burn out. Therefore, church, God's resources are inexhaustible. His power unwearied. His gifts diminish not the store of gifts he has to bestow upon us. You hear that, church? His gifts diminish not the store of the gifts he has to bestow upon us. For God gives and is never the poorer. God works and is never the wearier. He operates unspent and he loves forever. And down through the ages, the fire of the Holy One burns on unconsumed and undecayed. That's a little bit of what it means that the bush burns and isn't consumed. In church, I would say alongside of Alexander McLaren there, this is your God. Uh, elders, uh, ABF leaders, and biblical counselors, this is your God. There will be many situations that you cannot figure out and that you cannot see your way through. But God is the I am. He's got the end from the beginning. And he has not called you to be perfect or omniscient. He has just called you to speak his name in living faith. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, this is your God wife in a difficult marriage. This is your God. Lonely widower, widow, this is your God. Holiness in God himself. The second thing we can see from Isaiah chapter 6 is holiness and our salvation. For Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And one of the seraphim flies to him with a burning coal and touches his mouth and says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Holiness, the atoning work, the atoning provision of God to take away sin. How does this fit with God's holiness? If God is holy, then sin is ungodly or unholy. If God is holy and sin is unholy, then sin, biblically defined, this is a big thing that we don't get right. Sin, biblically defined, is always, that means in every instance, sin is always against God first before it is against someone else. Because God is holy and God is the standard. Now I know that when you sin, you sin against other people. 
And I'm just telling you, the only experience I have to relate is my own experience because I ain't lived your life, but I'm telling you, a huge part of my life as a pastor is helping the people against whom you have sinned deal with the pain and the fallout of that. It's a huge part of pastoral ministry. Of course, when you sin, you harm and hurt other people. But sin first and foremost is always sin against God because God's is the standard that is violated and God's holiness is the measure of all measures. So if God's holiness is the standard that is violated and that standard is infinite, you see where we're about to say about salvation? If God's holiness is the standard that is violated and that standard is infinite, then who can rectify such a situation? If the violation is infinite, then God in his holiness is the only one who can rectify it. Only God can make up or atone for sin because only God, only God inhabits the space, though it isn't space, God's transcendent, but only God inhabits the space between your sin and God because that space is infinite and nothing you could ever do not in, I mean, I don't say this flippantly, not an eternity in hell could make up for that. And I mean that literally. So in Isaiah 6, we see this encounter where God chooses a way that his infinite mercy can make atonement for the infinite weight of sin, which is infinite because it is against his infinite holiness. And the altar and the tongs and the coal. Church, we're headed to Good Friday. Church, we're headed to Easter Sunday. And we know that just as there was a little picture of a bush that burned, this altar is a little picture. The altar qua altar is that spike, that cross. And the coal and the heat is the blood that flowed on that gray hillside at Golgotha for no altar ever burned hotter than the place of the skull. And never was divine holiness more severely seen, more severely heard than in the cry, oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's holiness was the standard that was violated and that standard being infinite only the infinite lamb of God in his holiness could rectify that standard for us. Sin and salvation. You got to get a grip. If you, if, you, if you would just reckon what happened to you in your salvation, I'm telling you, the petty way that you pridefully mistreat other people's would disappear overnight. What does it mean to be saved? This is what it means to be saved. The only thing you ever brought to the table was your gross sin. It's the only thing you brought. And now your burden is removed and you're saved and it is all of God's holy, sovereign grace. What do you have that you didn't receive? How on earth could you complain against God or refuse to forgive another image bearer of God after God has done that in your life. Church, this is our 
gospel. This is the gospel we've received. And I'm urging you to, to believe it, to apply it in your own households and, and workplaces and to share this gospel with everyone everywhere. We put those cards out on the, on the table, these, these cards for, uh, about our Good Friday and Easter services. This, this, so Easter and Christmas, the easiest time in the year to invite somebody to church that they might hear the gospel. Church, this is our gospel. Share it with everyone, everywhere. And then finally, thirdly, uh, God's holiness and our life and ministry. You see this in Isaiah's strange call to ministry. When God says, I'm calling you to teach and I'm calling you to command people to repent. And Isaiah, check this out. You're gonna teach and nobody ain't gonna learn nothing. And you're gonna call people to repent and ain't nobody gonna repent. I think this has to do with the holiness of God. Because one more thing that God is doing is he's saying, Isaiah's one more person who's like, when I think of my call to ministry, I like to think of this. God says, uh-huh. <laughs> and, 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 and what Isaiah would like to think about his call to ministry isn't anywhere close to what God has to say about his call to ministry because God is transcendently, ineffably holy. The first time this passage, I think this is true, the first time this passage became very dear to me, uh, I was 20 years old. So just, what, four or five years ago. Uh, I, was an I was an assistant youth pastor in Southern California, and uh, there was, a, there was a, a junior in our high school group who I loved, and he wasn't saved. And I shared with them, and I drove him places, and I shared with them, and I, I finally, you know, we, our relationship was close, and I, had, I went through the whole gospel with him one more time over Cokes or Dr. Peppers, to be precise, at Carl's Jr. And uh, this guy, he looked back at me and he said, nope, I understand what you're selling and I'm not buying it. I like smoking weed. I like chasing girls. I don't want what, you've, what you're offering. And uh, that week, I met with the pastor who was mentoring me at the time. And I cried because of what this man, who I, this young man who I loved had said to me. And the pastor who was mentoring me at the time, he took me to this text and he said, you are right, Spencer, to weep. He said to me, that may be, he said that may be evidence of your call to ministry. He said, you're right to weep. He said, but, he said, if you're called to ministry, you will, this is what he said to me, you will put your head on your pillow tonight and you will sleep the whole night through because God is holy and the outcome of the matter is in his hands, not in your tossing and turning. And he also took me to the passage I memorized as soon as he took me to. He took me to Isaiah 6 and 2 Corinthians 2 that says that my ministry is an aroma of Christ to God. Fascinating. He doesn't say my ministry is an aroma of Christ to the people. My ministry is an aroma of Christ to God. 
and in the face of the people, I am to some an aroma of life to life, but to others an aroma of death to death. And God alone is sufficient for these things. This is what it means that it's God's holiness that calls us into ministry. And so what this means is that the outcomes are not in our little fingers. One of my favorite poets is T.S. Eliot and he has just a line in one of his poems that is, that is I've always remembered it. This is, this is the line. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. I believe T.S. Eliot wrote that as a Christian poet, meaning that our task, our task is to hear God's word and obey it. The rest is not our business. Our task is to trust and obey. But the outcome is not in our hands. It never was. Ours is not to see that our neighbor or our kid or our spouse or our ministry does everything that we wish it would do, that we don't have that kind of control or sovereignty. Ours is trusting, ours is trying, ours is obeying, but the rest is not our business. If I can apply this in ministry, which I try to do imperfectly, but I try to do, this issue is the death of pragmatism in church ministry. This issue to me is the death of pragmatism in church ministry. God's holiness is the death of all sort of outcome-based angling because God's holiness is the end and God's sovereignty is the end. And so what might happen, what could happen, well, I mean, I can apply it to preaching. What, what on earth would I say if every time I left that chair and walked up these stairs, I'm like, I wonder what they're going to think. I wonder what they're going to like. I wonder what they're not going to like. I wonder if their giving is going to be more or less. I wonder if they're going to throw eggs at my car. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. What would, what would my preaching turn into? Ezekiel 2. So man of God, I send you to the people who have rebelled against me and I send you to them and this you must say, thus says the Lord your God. And whether they hear or whether they refuse to hear, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So Ezekiel, be not afraid of their words. Do not be dismayed by their looks. You shall speak my words to them, whether they refuse to listen or whether they listen. This they shall know. My prophet was among them. I see that right in line with Isaiah 6. I see it in line with what T.S. Eliot meant in that little poem that the rest is not our business. We can't make a, a, an outcome-based decision-making. And I've seen this more than once in church leadership. We went through 1 Corinthians 5 a few weeks ago in our ABFs. Like 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, like dealing with unrepentant sin by naming the person either to the entire church body or to their ABF and putting them out of the church. I've been in leadership meetings where this, this is clearly what the Bible says to do. But, and someone says, well, this is going to be perceived as unloving. This might not work. The church might react negatively to this. Well, the church might react negatively to this. But I, this I know. God's word is trustworthy and I've been called to trust and obey. The rest is not my business. 
if I could expand this beyond the pastor's role and uh, sitting alongside you with a heart that breaks along with your heart, if I could help you apply this in your own life, in your own parenting, in your own marriage, in your own fractured relationship, whatever that is. What's the goal? Of course the goal in parenting is that my children will love the Lord and, 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 and you know, be, be wonderful believers. Of course the goal in marriage is that our marriage will be filled with love and good communication and sweetness. But that is a goal. It's a good goal. I'd even say it's a necessary goal that we work toward. But that is not the primary goal. This is what I'm saying. That can't be the primary goal. What is and ever has been the primary goal? The primary goal is and ever has been the holy glory of God. The primary goal is and ever has been that God is God and I will trust him and obey. And so with a broken heart beside you, I join you in praying that your parenting, according to biblical principles, will produce the outcome that you want in your kids. And with a broken heart beside you, I join you in praying that your biblical application of principles in your marriage will help to make your home more filled with love. I want that for you. But it is the case that the outcome is not ours to accomplish. Ours is to trust and obey and wait on the Lord. If I could speak of holiness as a, an old guy for a minute, um, I, I know many of you are older than I am, uh, but uh, I have been in ministry for what, 30 years now. Uh, and I just, just to sound a little bit curmudgeonly, today, these are the buzzwords I hear about ministry. Impact, on fire, world changer, authentic, dynamic, innovative results. And I don't like any of them. <laughs> Maybe it's me. But when I was coming up, the men who mentored me and taught me how to pray, the buzzwords were holiness, prayer, the fear of the Lord. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Trust and obey. To say that God is holy on this third point of God's holiness in my life and ministry is to say that if I believe that God is holy, then I believe that uh, the ultimate issue isn't uh, what do people think of me or how do people respond to me or what fruit do I see in the little horizon of my life. What matters is that God is holy and that in the beauty of God's holiness, this I know, Knowing that God is God is my peace. 
Knowing that God is God is my stability. I'll weep when I don't see the outcomes that I want, but that weeping is not gonna make me sleepless for the rest of my life. And it ain't because I don't care about the outcome. It is because I have learned that God is holy and God and God alone is omniscient and sovereign. And trusting God and walking with God is the only way for the beauty of God's holiness to stitch my life together and keep me going day after day and year after year. And so I commend to you God and his holiness that it would transform your life in ministry, that it would be what you believe about sin and judgment and salvation and you share that with everybody everywhere and that in the perfection of his own character, you would worship a holy God. Let's pray. Lord God, as you sent the coal from the altar to Isaiah, as you sent your son, to be the propitiation for our sin. So we come before you, grateful for salvation. And so we come before you with lives that aren't yet what they ought to be. And we ask you to have your way in us. Jesus, hear the prayers of your precious lambs. Hear our prayer about the outcome that we want to see in our marriages, in our parenting, in our finances, in every area of our life, hear those prayers. And in your mercy, answer those prayers for your glory. But Lord, in the long term or the short term, even if we don't see the outcome that we long for, oh, help us to trust your holiness, to rest in your holiness, to venture all upon you for we have no other, for you and you alone are God. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.